0: Hello, my lovely friends. We are back, coming out of hibernation and a long hiatus to bring Uninvisible Pod back to your ears. And in celebration of this beautiful shift and a shift onto our new platform at Substack, more info on that very shortly, I wanted to re-release an episode from way back when This was episode 46, which released in October of 2019. It features Dr. Chris Armstrong, Ph.D. He's the Open Medicine Foundation Science Liaison researching MECFS, or chronic fatigue syndrome, as it is also commonly known. In this episode, we talked about MECFS, the need for research and improved diagnostic structure, which I know has become even more of a hot topic since the advent of the COVID 19 pandemic. We dove into the disease's history, its lack of appropriate funding, and why the patients that Dr. Armstrong met have motivated him to stay the course in his research work. I'm really excited to re release this episode. Being that it has been the most popular so far, and I hope that it will offer some new insights in the changed world that we're all tuning into it with, new ears, kind of, uh, given everything that's gone on since 2020, right, folks? Uh, I really hope you enjoy this re-release, and there will be very new episodes coming soon. I'm sure you noticed that I took a bit of a hiatus from the podcast, Now, during that time, I was working on multiple projects for this community, including my health coaching certification, and the projects will all be released within the year. Meantime, I was also continuing to work on my own physical and spiritual healing. It's a big one. One of the things that became clear to me in that time was that in order to continue to sustain this podcast, I have to make it more profitable. I'm sure many of you can relate to the need to reshape our life and work around our physical needs, and also to make sure that the work is nourishing us. Now, I'd love to say that the stories are enough to keep me going. But like all of you, I have medical bills to pay. And this podcast is a lot of work for one person on her own. Energetically, the exchange of a small donation every month for you to continue to listen to this content felt like a comfortable stepping stone as I come out of hibernation, and I'm keeping it super affordable for you in the process in the hope that you'll be kind enough to stick it out with me. So with that said, Uninvisible Pod is moving to Substack. While I will continue to maintain a freely accessible archive up to and including the next two episodes, or more specifically, up to and including episode 150, episodes released after that point, so from 151 on, will become subscription only for $5 a month. That's it. And will continue to be available to download and stream on all major podcast platforms. What this means... You'll get two more free episodes coming your way before the paywall hits because I wanted to give you some lead time to adjust to the news. After that, new episodes will be available exclusively for subscribers whose monetary support will enable me to keep producing the pod and bringing exciting and inspiring stories about thriving through chronic conditions to your earholes. Head to uninvisiblepod.substack.com to subscribe. And don't worry, I'll send this in an email if you're on the mailing list. And if you're a fan of the pod, please share this news with your friends. All your likes, your shares, follows, reviews, and comments help keep Uninvisible visible or really audible in the big wide world of healthcare media. The more you interact with and support this work, the more I can keep getting the word out and sharing stories that make us all feel less alone. Thank you, loves. Uninvisible is a support podcast that provides information, ideas, suggestions, and experiences that deal squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice of any kind. We do provide support, concepts, ideas, discussions, and information that you can use to make sure that you are being heard and that your concerns are being addressed. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing, but we will be here for you along your journey. We welcome all comments about our episodes and, of course, the correction of any errors. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our Terms of Service and Privacy Policy, which are available on our website located at www.uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Most of all, we welcome your stories and experiences to share with our community because without you, this community and the benefit it offers all of us would not exist. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Of course, in the event that you are having a medical emergency of any kind, consult your physician or emergency services. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Chris Armstrong, who is the science liaison for the Open Medicine Foundation, or OMF, as some of you might know it. OMF is an organization that is working on building awareness and funding research into ME, CFS, which is myalgic encephalomyelitis, um, chronic fatigue syndrome. So Chris, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me on, Lauren.
0: Yeah, it's a total pleasure. So why don't we just start from the top and you can tell us about your work uh, in research and um, how you came to OMF.
1: Okay, so I'll probably start everything at the beginning. Mm. Um, I actually got into this area straight from uh, a science undergraduate degree. Mm. Uh, I went into working as a what would be the equivalent of a master's in the US, looking into MECFS at the time. And that really came as a project with uh, that had very little funding. It was more of a dreamed up uh, project between Two people actually who met on a tram. um, My supervisor and yeah, someone who was also working somewhere close to the tram. Yeah, strangers on a a tram indeed. And then they come to cook together a project uh, in regards to MECFS, which which was looking at the gut bacteria actually, um, and trying to and trying to determine these gut bacterial. Differences between CFS and healthy people, and then looking at uh, maybe some of the compounds, or, pro- or what we call metabolites that are being produced by these uh, bacteria and how they might be affecting. People with that MECFS.
0: makes a lot of sense because gut bacteria has so much to do with the root cause of so many chronic illnesses. So it's, it's interesting that you've been looking into it with MECFS.
1: Yes, yes. Well, my, my supervisor was a protein chemist, but the, but the gentleman that he met was a microbiologist and he'd been working in this area. He'd actually had a private lab looking into MECFS and, and other diseases, actually. He was looking at doing, uh, he pretty much would measure the amounts of bacteria and the types of bacteria in the in samples um in the stool samples and from that would determine what we would call gut dysbiosis wow so yeah that was very early on in the day that was dec- uh, 10 years ago and okay
0: so this was when you were like an uh, undergrad student
1: yeah well this is just coming out this is coming into what was equivalent of a master's and that um the gut dysbiosis actually sort of work has become bigger and bigger over the, the 10 years for sure. But mm. also looking at the metabolites, which are these little compounds that uh, everyone creates, what bacteria create, we use them for energy. We use them for everything. And you probably know them as amino acids, sugars, lipids, uh, fatty acids, all these little compounds. But for us, they're real, they're real molecules. Yeah. And, and that's what we're hoppers. trying to measure. Yeah, yeah. And so that is actually my area. So my main area is to measure these little compounds mm. in um, whatever different types of biofluids, so blood, urine, uh, saliva, all these different type of areas in which we can access to these fluids. And what they do is they tell you about the overall system mm. um, of the body. And they are wow. very complicated in, in the way that you try and because they're very complex because they constantly changing. Uh, and they're constantly dynamic and working with each other in relation to what you, as the person, is doing or feeling. Yeah. Uh, whether you've eaten, whether you're sleeping, whether you're exercising, they will change. And so, so it's they hard to get you,
0: like a baseline, even just for a, a typical healthy person.
1: Yeah, it is tough to get a baseline, but because they're so sensitive, they'll tell you really things that are going on that um, in, within the body that might be most closely linked to symptoms. And so that as a area of research has actually been very new. It's only really come out or it's been building probably over the last few decades, but it's only really become more popular in the last five, five to 10 years actually. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a very new area of research and that's become one of the big things for MECFS because this is a condition where there is no known pathology there is no known damage that can be measured within the individuals or that has been visualized within the individuals that have this disease. We just have a complex set of symptoms. Mm. And so that was the value of this type of research is that usually you use metabolomics to characterize the pathology, but because it's so sensitive, mm. um, so sensitive to just the general conditions of the body, you it will tell you whether there's something wrong if you even haven't seen the pathology itself. So, right. and that's, this has been one of the first consistent findings in this field. Um, okay. So, so this is sort
0: of opening a door to potential treatments possibly.
1: This is, yes. Well, this is opening a door to at the very initial, at the, at the outset really to kind of maybe think whether we are finding some biomarkers, mm-hmm. but also to really understanding the disease because it gets taken for granted that a lot of these, diseases that we get diagnosed is really based on the pathology that you see a doctor will find that you're not making myelin or your myelin is damaged and you'll Mm -hmm. have lesions, or you'll have yeah there'll be Mm -hmm. problems with uh you know tumors or growth that shouldn't Mm -hmm. be there or you have different types of damage um, within the body and part of this of what we're trying to do is determine how or where this issue is in MECFS patients because we don't have any of them.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that seems to be one of the really frustrating things about having MECFS or possibly having it, right? Is that there's a lack of diagnostic structure, which you guys are trying to work on with these studies, but also um, a lack of treatment structure. Can you walk us through a little bit about what MECFS is for people who are listening and going, What are you talking about?
1: Yeah, so it's a complicated disorder. Mm. Uh, it's was originally known, I guess, as myalgic encephalomyelitis. And probably the best way to understand it is to go back into time, into where it happened, because there have been reports of this condition for, for many, many years, for centuries. Mm. Um, but the major reports kind of came out as outbreaks during the middle of the 19th century.
0: Oh, um, interesting.
1: Yeah, this was this is a bit really unusual component of this disease is that you can have outbreaks of it. Mm. And so what it really is, is um, something like a trigger or a trauma or sometimes no trauma. But essentially what happens is the person gets to a state where they have significant levels of fatigue, uh, significant issues with sleep, significant issues with um, pain and sensitivities uh, and when you say significant issues sensitivities
0: yeah it's not just like someone's real tired but it's like these people are no, no longer able to function as they normally would
1: yes this this is this is a, a loss of function and yeah. the, the and basis of the diagnosis is yeah generally a, at least a minimum of 50 percent loss of function mm. um, and so then you have the main the main symptom of this disease is something called post exertional malaise Mm -hmm. which is after any type of exertion, uh, mental, physical, uh, stressful, you'll have a very uh, significant dip into exacerbating your symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, And these will include uh, significant headaches, uh, inability to move, uh, fatigue, like you've never felt before, what patients refer to as brain fog where they can't really find uh, the words that they want to say. And so that is the most debilitating component of the disease itself. And one of the toughest things to organize and to try and to, for the research, for the patients themselves to get come to grips with is that, you know, doing work, doing exercise, doing exertion is going to sometimes make them a lot worse. And so mm-hmm. how do you grapple with that? And um, in terms of, you know, and they, they, there's a variety, there's probably over 60 t- different types of symptoms, but wow. the, the, four, the four core are really post-exertion malaise, uh, fatigue, unrefreshing sleep, and cognitive impairment. So. Mm. They are the core, and then they'll have pain episodes as well. It's highly comorbid with diseases like fibromyalgia as well. Yep. Um, So there are a number of different conditions which kind of which have very similar uh, symptoms to this. Dovetail, right? Yeah, they really dovetail into each other.
0: Yeah. So does that mean that that ME/CFS has been misunderstood or underdiagnosed by the medical community up to this point?
1: Uh, yes, uh, it has also the, the amount of attention into research into this area has been very minimal. Mm. Um, so probably I need to go back onto the history train. So mm. when the outbreaks first came out, it was really unexplained. It was kind of, it was kind of seen as like a flu like illness or a polio like illness mm. initially. Um, and it was first probably best described in the sixties, um, by this thing called the Ramsey definition. And that's when it first got the name myalgic encephalomyelitis. Mm. Uh, and that's, I think it was recognized by the World Health Organization as that in yeah. 1969.
0: Mm.
1: And then there was some more outbreaks. This was kind of the area um, where it was getting the most public attention because when you get a lot of people getting struck down with a mysterious illness, you know, it captures the attention of, of people. And then yeah. so in this was actually happening largely in Europe and in Australia, and there was some in the U.S., but it wasn't until around the 80s in the U.S. where they had these significant, uh, a number of different outbreaks, and it came down to the CDC coming together and putting towards a definition where they called it chronic fatigue syndrome, mm. and this was largely based around chronic fatigue uh, the fatigue aspect for a mm. long period of time, and this is a key aspect of this disease and another complexity is you need to have it for at least six months so it's it 's an ongoing chronic disease that isn 't going away um, and
0: do we know if it 's infectious as well if it were was associated with these outbreaks in the past
1: it, it does get it gets associated really strongly to infection because of these outbreaks and because a lot of people can get them from significant infections but mm. Probably if you wanted to put an umbrella of what causes it, it's just general significant levels of, I guess, of a trauma or a stress for a long period of time. So yeah. we talk about stress in medical areas. It's not, it's not mental stress as what people probably most readily recognize or associate to the word stress, but you have many different times, like physical stress, you have traumatic stress, you have mental stress, emotional stress, nutritional stress, chemical stress, And so we really have many different factors that can Mm. cause this, Um, but it's really in the body itself. They're all kind of pinging off the same pathways Mm. because your body doesn't really have multiple different ways it deals with all these different stresses. It it hasn't developed or evolved to have a different pathway for dealing with getting hit from a bus or dealing with a lion eating it or dealing with a a disease. It's all very much the same pathway. It's all
0: fight or flight, isn't it?
1: It's fight or flight, but it's also the healing pathways within the body, and how they really um, break it down. If you were, I mean, you you have to have evolve to have a way to heal yourself that can deal with anything that's happened to you, mm. um, because the body hasn't evolved to know the things or the diseases that are coming at it. It's evolved a system that it can kind of bounce back from anything that comes at it. Well, that's but the idea
0: with with MECFS, are lacking this system or or it's malfunctioning somehow is that right
1: that's that's kind of the idea that's mm-hmm. one of the ideas and that's one of the major schools of thought in this disease of course mm-hmm. there's also always people who are concerned about the 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 role that pathogens might play and you know they we're just scratching the surface with the way that roles of pathogens might play i mean the idea of conventional medicine has really really being based on acute based pathogens or acute mm. based diseases where you suddenly get a severe onset you know and then you can clear it up with this medication right whereas what we're talking about here is more uh other com- other other entities like bacteria or other molecule, other pathogens that might exist with the person at the same time for a long period of time
0: so how big is this epidemic do you guys have any way of measuring what you're dealing with here,
1: so probably some of the best estimates we have is about one in two to three hundred people so is it um,
0: considered a rare disease then
1: it's not a rare disease actually. this is far too high uh, in prevalence to be a rare disease, mm. but what it is is is, is uh, treated like a rare disease, um, and that really comes back to the misunderstandings about what this condition is. And that's really led into a lot of the stigma associated with it, I guess, mm. or the, or the lack of research associated with it. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's, um that's a, that's a crucial area for this disease. I mean, because without having um, that pathology or being able to find this biological diagnosis, it's been difficult to start research into it. And so it's been difficult to know where to start and without providing those answers early on, it's actually been very difficult for the medical community to come up with some strategies to how to treat the patients as well. Mm -hmm. So it's all kind of like a mess together. Yeah. yeah.
0: Do you find that you are hearing stories about doctors, um, you know, perhaps misdiagnosing someone with hypochondria or like hysteria even?
1: Sure. Definitely. That's, that was been a big part of this disease's history and, and still happening. So it's not just the history, it's still happening today. And I think a lot of that comes down to just um, not being educated enough in the area itself and, and the other t- different types of research that's happening. You know, it's, you know, I, I do, I do feel for doctors uh, and, and people sometimes because obviously they have a difficult job and they have a lot of things to cover. But there's only certain type of clinicians who will kind of dig in and, and, and try and dig in and try and really understand everything about what their patient is doing and, and so what's happening to their patient and, and educating themselves on this disease and, and the new research that's happening. Um, but at the same time, you know, everything has to get better at um, communicating what to do. Clinicians have to get, the ones who are very knowledgeable on ME-CFS have to get together and formulate, you know, Common, common, I guess.
0: Like language and diagnostic structure. Yeah, guidelines.
1: Guidelines, diagnostic structure, all this sort of stuff, and treatment guidelines Mm. to help people who probably don't want to invest, you know a long long period of their life truly really trying to understand this, but Absolutely. just so that they can have easy access to it and help the patients in front of them.
0: And what about the patients in the meantime? You know, it seems like they're in this holding pattern and that's then going to take a further emotional toll. Um, and yeah. they just stay sick, don't they? I mean, how, how do you see that changing in the future with the research that you're doing and the funding that you guys are working on raising to continue research?
1: Well, I mean, the patients really are the forefront of our minds, in in, and that's really what the uh, Open Medicine Foundation was really set up for. It's about trying to find a way in which we can get treatments as fast as possible, because, mm. you know, the, the the role of research is generally to slowly evolve and and build better treatments and and add to the existing but in this case there's really nothing for these people so you know the forefront of for our for us is just to get something um specific right. so they can at least ameliorate a lot of the problems they have with this disease and so that's kind of uh the path that we take there well we we like to show people what we're doing on the road to getting treatments. It's not just, you know, we just do clinical trials on all these different types of drugs, because that's extremely expensive and time consuming. So you've got to work out, you know, the most efficient way to do it. So you're, you're kind of performing research, but also optimizing the path on the way to performing research. And you're constantly thinking about how is this work that I'm doing, going to translate to some sort of physical product like either a diagnostic or a treatment for the patients themselves because that's really the difference here i mean mm. i worked in academic academic research and the difference really from working now with um, open medicine foundation is that that push towards treatments and that push mm. towards diagnostics it's it's no longer the paper is the final entity or the research article is the final entity of, that we're trying to get out here it's
0: it'll be a cured patient
1: yeah that's that's the goal mm. um, it's not, yeah so that's you know and i, I really believe in that goal um, and i believe in the concept of that um yeah. removing kind of other distractions
0: yeah does that does that sort of light a fire under everyone 's asses when they're when they 're researching you know that like there there are patients in mind here and and you 're getting to know some of them personally as well like that kind of that level of personal involvement does that take a toll on you guys as researchers too
1: uh, it 's very uplifting actually i think mm. um, depending on, i guess on the way you perceive it, but I perceive it as very uh, motivational. And yes, it does light a fire under you. I think that when I got into the field, you know, I don't, a lot of the people who actually research in the field or the, the, uh, the big names, I guess, researching this area, um, have a relationship with people with MECFS. And it's
0: very interesting that, isn't it? They have a personal connection to it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: They have a personal connection. And I guess, because it is so underfunded, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you really, you really have to remove your steady job or remove your steady income as a, as a, you know, a researcher, yeah, and go into something uncharted territories where there's probably not going to be enough funding on the s- other side to kind of keep you going, and right. so it's really just based on hope or belief that something will come of it and you'll be able to keep pushing forward. So, there is a lot of that. Um, the motivation has been a connection with MECFS. I personally don't have one, mm. um, but when I got into the field, uh, that was my main thing is as a master student you know having relationship with some of the patients just chatting to them and uh, getting to know the disease i think you see how unfair it is yeah and that's really what captured me was just how unfair this is and
0: when you say unfair you mean not just in terms of like how these patients are forced to live but in terms of their experience in the medical system because yeah no fault of the doctors just because no one understands it right
1: yeah, that's right. I mean, that's that's the unfairness of it. It's just, uh, you know, I, I kind of think that government groups need to be careful about trying to make sure that they're funding uh, mm-hmm. a whole bevy of different diseases because, you know, you get a lot of research happening in certain conditions. And then there is yeah. a lot of these ones, I guess, as you would know, in the uninvisible. Un, un- yeah, <laughs> uh, There's a lot of conditions out there and that's really what happens. You know, they 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 don't get the attention they don't have the marketing dollars they don't get that money out and they they can't get money going into them for How for does how does
0: the research funding for something like MECFS compare to the research funding for something like cancer?
1: Uh it's very little. Um, yeah. probably I probably give numbers I think there was estimations as about $5 per patient is given to research in MECFS and mm-hmm. probably something in the order of nearly $3,000 per patient in AIDS, for instance. So wow, that's, you're talking about a 600 fold difference.
0: Which is not also to minimize the impact of these other diseases, but the fact that there's
1: no yeah, no funding
0: into this, it's like, we really need to start like, Considering this.
1: <laughs> that's that's the problem, anything, right? So. Yeah. I mean, that's the hard thing. You don't want to obviously say these other diseases aren't as important. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. definitely as important. And that's the message is, is really to see if you can get more funding into these areas. And um, it's just about fairness. It's about trying to get them the funding mm-hmm. that they deserve
0: absolutely, um, and
1: recognizing the suffering that they're going through. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really, really important. Um, and and the way you do that is with money. I mean, that's what money is important in, in this money world. Talks. That's how you get things done. Mm. Yeah, and uh, that's that's kind of what you need. I mean, we do a lot of work on volunteer. We could do a lot of work on people who are just willing to give their time, mm. um, but you still need a significant amount of money to make this sort of stuff happen, unfortunately. Yeah,
0: which is exactly why OMF exists and hopefully you guys all yes. uh reach a wider audience being on the show today. Um, so do you find that patients are often ending up on some kind of government assistance because they're losing so much of their regular function? And then is there like, does the government sort of fight back because there's this lack of diagnostic structure? Is it just this constant back and forth where no one gets anything?
1: Well, yeah, it's, uh, it's almost like it's, you're kind of trying to find the villain in this and there's just there's just no one seems to be the villain exactly. And then yeah, you, know, you kind of, you, you want there to be like some bad guy who's like pulling the strings and saying, no, you can't have this money, you know, because <laughs> I don't care about you. Yeah. The, you know, the reality is that it's like this system, which is kind of like a vicious cycle where, mm-hmm. yeah, the government want to probably, I mean, I and mean, the government people that I've spoken to, they're aware of it. They really want to get invested in it. But in the research field themselves, like for as an academic, you know, you're going up against the granting systems are based on fairness, but you're going up against people who already have money in their field and they're using that money to do research and get results. Mm. And then they show that they have this history of all these results, all these papers, they show these like new results that they have in their grants when they're applying for funding. Mm. And obviously that looks a lot better compared to someone in, uh, with a disease that really has no funding. Mm. You're trying to piece together some research. I mean, it's just, it's just not, a, it's not a fair playing field. Yeah. In that regard. And at some point you, you've got to try and work out, well, how do you make that system fair? I mean, because fair. it's set up, designed to be fair. It's meant to be impartial. It's meant to be based on peer review, which is scientists, mm. reviewing scientists. Um, And it's fair enough, if I had a grant come across my desk application and you have, or you have a few grants, you're going to give it to the one that looks like they have the better track record because you really don't know much more about this other than that they appear to be, the scientists themselves appear to have a great understanding of this disease. They've done a lot of projects into it. And so they probably look like the surest bet that they Mm -hmm. can deliver on this new project, this new funding that they're applying for. Mm. yeah this is the complexity of it and so what it comes down to is I guess government agencies having to do a what we call a targeted call or specifically saying look we're going to allocate money for people specifically looking at this disease so that they have kind of a leg up Um, Mm. and I guess it's not I guess it's like equity right it's not equality it's trying to elevate superficially just so that they can get to the point where they can actually get to equality
0: that's yeah. Cool. And well lis- listeners tuning in now are going to they're probably pegged the the idea here that you have an accent, right? So yes. um <laughs> you came up working in Australia
1: yes. and
0: now work in the US in these research fields. So you've experienced I, at least the research into this condition in on both continents, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if you've also through that experience gained an understanding of, like, the medical system in these two countries, um, and as we're talking about the government, too, you know, do you see disparities between the two in the way in which patients and doctors are being both treated and trained, respectively?
1: uh that's a good question actually i think there is a lot of similarities i mean a lot of these issues that i'm talking about are just global issues it's it's lack of research it's lack of understanding globally and so then uh it's also i mean back in the history of the research area because there was no easy answers and you have all these patients you end up having a lot of people going into uh or or a lot of gps offloading mecfs patients into you know psychiatry and and psychology Mm. and they're trying to work out ways in which they can help people with mecfs and some of those have been actually quite detrimental Mm. um so but those things are also kind of difficult to remove because now you've created like an industry and this is like this is the path that they go and then some people have their uh, built entire careers on trying to help people through a psychiatry background with ME-CFS. So he's so trying to help people with me using their psychiatry background. Right. And so you've got to try and then remove them. You know, you've got to take them out of that and then try and make the emphasis more about biomedical. Yeah. Um, so that, that they're understanding...
0: So it sounds like the understanding in both fields, in both playing fields, I should say. So like in the US and in Australia that you've seen is that often it's considered a psychiatric problem that like it's a psychological disease and not something that's full body.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel in the in Australia, definitely more in the medical community probably feels more like that. Mm-hmm. Um, in the UK, definitely as well. Mm-hmm. Um, probably more strongly, My my... Th- understanding of the U S is they do with that as well. But I don't know if it's to that same level as in Australia and the UK. Mm. Um, I think it, it could very well be a little better here. Although my experience in it might be not enough to really comment on that. Right. Um, sure. Working with the doctors because the, the researchers and the doctors that I've worked with here are all specifically biomedical based. Um, yeah. And so the, the NIH is recently, you know, they they seem to be quite receptive. Our government, bodies for giving funding in Australia are a little slower, it seems. Mm. So um, there is Despite some...
0: Despite the fact that there's a nationalized health system in Australia.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. I yeah. mean, in some ways, it's it's interesting you say that because in some ways I've noticed um, how, because it's a nationalized system, they have, na- they have like nationalized guidelines. So it really affects the government. You know, if you're going to start treating these people, there is more investment there already because, you know, if they're being treated for a disease not correctly, then I guess maybe people with ME/CFS are actually burdening the government more with uh, the type of treatments that they're doing. However, that I'm word special-
0: made me so sad when you said burdening. <laughs>
1: no, no, yeah. I know. it's horrible. No, but yeah. the 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 way I don't think the medical system in Australia, while we do have free healthcare, it doesn't it doesn't they don't get. Um, the, those benefits people in Australia mm. with ME-CFS because mm. the government hasn't recognized it. So that's what I was trying to say is like the, because if they recognize it, then they have to start paying for it type of thing. Mm, so yeah, of in Australia, uh, sorry, in, in the US, I'm not sure if it's to that same degree. Um, but then I guess insurance companies then probably have to start paying for it. And I know this probably. And they is, don't
0: want to. <laughs>
1: yes, that's yeah. right. No one wants to pay money. Um, and that's what it comes down to. And, and, uh, and the money is
0: the money. Sort of lives in a lack of diagnosis for that reason. So that's got to make it even harder for you to fight against the lack of understanding of this disease.
1: Yeah, that's the that's the really terrible part about it, I guess. Yeah. And so what we want to try and do is, you know, I mean, OMF themselves aren't really associated strongly with uh, campaigning or advocacy or anything like that. Mm. The main focus is really the research and also education. Yeah. And so we really want to just leave from that and, and and go, you know, well, we're just going to focus on this. We're going to push and try and get as much information biologically about this condition out there and trying to change people's minds. And then that's kind of like the grassroots effort of what we're trying to do.
0: So you've heard of life coaching, but have you heard of health coaching? A few years ago, I honestly had no idea that the field even existed or that I would end up finding it to be super supportive in my own life. In an effort to support this community beyond just the podcast itself, I have now trained as a health advocacy coach specializing in chronic conditions. What? I've been certified by the National Board for Health and Wellness Coaching, the International Association of Health Coaches, the American Association of Drugless Practitioners, and the American Holistic Health Association, among others. I'm now able to take this work off the air and into your life, no matter where in the world you live, helping you work toward transformation from surviving to thriving. Using my in-depth knowledge of lifestyle, nutrition, stress management, personal advocacy, and more, I'm now able to work as your guide on the side, giving you the added support you need as you navigate industrialized medicine in your search for healing, whatever that might look like for you. I offer individual coaching and will be releasing group courses very soon, so get excited about that. If you're interested in learning more about health coaching and how I can support you, head over to uninvisiblecoaching.com. You can actually sign up there for a free 30-minute intake session to talk to me, find out if we're a good fit, and go from there. I'm so excited to connect personally with more members of this community and help you learn to control the things you can control while working in harmony with your medical team and your individual needs. Again, head to uninvisiblecoaching.com and sign up now for your free 30-minute intake sesh. I can't wait to learn more about you. I know I just gave you the spiel on health coaching, which is more focused on the systems to support your wellness goals, but if a life and executive coach is more of what you're looking for, then I'd like to offer my personal recommendation of Jenna Chieco, a graduate of Dr. Martha Beck's coach training program with a background in psychology and law. She is a former tech chief of staff and worked in the Obama administration. Jenna is an executive and life coach who inspires high achieving professionals to step into their best lives. by cultivating a growth mindset and accessing their inner wisdom and strengths. She is additionally trained in internal family systems, Jonathan Fields' spark type assessment, somatic coaching, and more. Jenna works remotely to offer accessible services, and she's offering 10% off to new clients who enroll and mention code INVISIBLE. Go to Jenna Chieco, that's G-E-N-A-C-H-I-E-C-O, jennachieco.com, for more. H- have there been stories of success with certain treatments? Like I've heard about certain controversial treatments, particularly the ones that take a psychological point of view, right? Yep. Um, that often get a bad rap in the ME-CFS community. And I'm wondering, you know, cause it's like we're hearing a lot of bad news, right? <laughs> but um, what is the good news? Diagnostically speaking, you know, has there been, have there been some bright spots along the way? Have there been people who've been cured? And if they were cured, were they misdiagnosed in the first place?
1: So the, I think the biggest bright spot for me is just the momentum of research that's happening. So when I started in this field 10 years ago, there was like no funding there was hardly anyone doing any type of research. And now today it's, you know, the funding has actually got to a level. It's still very low, but it's actually improved yeah. um, from nothing. And so, and also the research field is is much bigger as well. And there's some big name researchers coming into this. I mean, you have significant universities. I know OMF has, is funding collaborative centers at Harvard, at Stanford, wow. which are some of the big name research institutions in the US. Um, yeah. And so, these are These are the bright spots they're, the, they're to me that's the biggest the biggest change and that's that's nothing to sneeze at really I mean this is where it all begins I and mean, every disease that we have now, even the ones that are well researched, ones like multiple sclerosis they they started in a similar position but they, they just started that fifty fifty years ago you know mm. so is it just about continuing point to, now. That,
0: to push with that momentum, or are there strategic ways in which um, OMF and individual researchers like you are sort of going about raising awareness for this illness.
1: Yes, there is. Um, there is a strat- The strategy is well. I like to liken it from, and I'm Australian, so I liken, I like to liken it to uh, to building a reef. And Australians mm-hmm. really known for the Great Barrier Reef, and so that's a big part of of yep. um, things that we learn when we're when we're younger and and to try and rebuild the reef because there's significant amounts of damage and they're trying to work out the fastest ways to do that. And so a reef letting something happen organically like building a reef like building a research field is you just kind of little bits of coral here and there grow and you know the current might wipe them away. Well with research you have you might fund little groups here and there they don't find any answers they find some answers, but then they don't have funding to continue, so they just kind of disappear. And so that's kind of what's been happening for, for a little while with ME-CFS. There has been research, but very small-scale, small research groups, mm. and they can't sustain themselves, so they kind of just disappear over the course. And so all the things that they learned, all that information is also gone. Mm. And so the difference is in what you do with kind of reef building is you try and create these farms or you, you, you create structures which can be protective mm. for the reef that's growing. So you, you work out ways in which you can anchor the, these, these reef-building um, corals to these uh, solid structures and, mm. and then it kind of grows from there. And that's kind of what, we, what we're doing with the collaborative research centres so that the idea is that by funding them that sustainably and trying to do it long term, that they'll be around for a long period of time. And then instead of having a granting process where other researchers come to us and we give out a little bit of money here and there, we make sure that any of the research that happens is in collaboration with one of those centers. Mm. So when they build that knowledge or someone else is in another university is doing some research in collaboration with that group, you know, they do the project, they might find something good. They might find something bad, but in the end or, or nothing at all, but at the end you actually learn something. And that is retained within the collaborative centers. And that's really how we're trying to build out the initial or the initiation of this research field.
0: Yeah. It's almost as if you're trying to give the findings a little more life, isn't it?
1: You're trying to give the findings a little more life, but sustainability, you want to try and get them to a point where they can, they'll be around. And and that knowledge will be around for 10, 15 years. Yeah. 20 years or 30 years or however long. So. Mm Nothing, nothing is lost. We just don't want to lose all the little clues. We just don't want to keep losing all these little clues and pieces. Um, yeah, absolutely. So that's really where it's coming down to. And also the standardized way in which they do the research. Um, mm-hmm. If you have a lack of funding, you know, generally in research, you'll just try and do whatever you can. Mm. But the idea is to try and do things the right way and consistent with each other. And that's important for a disease like ME-CFS, again, because... There is no biomarker. And so it's all the diagnosis is reliant upon looking at the clinical presentation of symptoms within the Mm -hmm. patients and following a diagnostic criteria. And another layer of problems is that there are multiple types of criteria for this disease. There's no even one consistent one that's being used. There are ones that are highly recommended by bodies and groups, but because it's evolved over time, it's evolved from the eighties to now over the last 30 years. And in that time period, you know, some people will just, doctors will just take it and they're like, Oh, this is the diagnosis that I know. And then they just stick with it. Right. And they might be sticking with one that was from like 20, 30 years ago, but you know, not keeping up to date with the most, the most, the newest ones
0: yeah i mean it's interesting because we hear about that kind of outdated information Mm -hmm. um that doctors cling to sometimes we hear about that in so many other illnesses so it's no surprise that it's happening with MECFS as well
1: medicine was really set up to stop death happening right Mm -hmm. and what we're trying to do or, or put out fires but we're trying it's not about like waiting for someone to get so bad that you then have to remove this symptom or this part of their disease or this thing that's really struggling with them it's about trying to get to a point where people are you know having actually no problems or and are healthy and can be fully committed in society i think mm. is that's that's the goal and i don't think that has been the goal yeah, in medicine you know so it's we've not had,
0: we've got like, a sick care system and not a preventive care
1: system as well. yeah that's right yeah it's like me- there are just a lot of mechanics i mean the, yeah, a lot of mechanics without the servicing so you're yeah. just going taking your car to the show every time it's like broken down and then you like fix it again mm. um
0: rather than like putting good good petrol in it and like
1: yeah, and just looking after it, like,
0: it and yeah looking after it exactly yeah and that's
1: really left to the you know at least I mean, at least mechanics have servicing, (laughs) you know, True, (laughs) but I mean the, the, you know, we don't really have that to that degree because I guess in the U S there probably is a difference. I mean, at least in Australia it's free. So all on you for not going to the doctor. But the
0: other thing you said is that like, you know, because health is subsidized for citizens in Australia, it almost makes the red tape even more red tapey. That's what. Know? That's the
1: concern is whether yeah. that is the you know because it is you know once you start going oh yeah this is condition we have to start paying for this now you know mm. it's like they would like it to get to a point where we have a treatment first so that they can then fund the treatment because but then they know that they're research. not going into a hole where they're just having to supplement you know all. But it sounds
0: op- like they're asking for the chicken before the egg. That's right. Or putting the cart that's, before the horse, I should say. <laughs>
1: they, they, recognize, they recognize it. I just don't know where it's going to go. Um, yeah. I think they'll recognize the research before they recognize, the, you know, at least funding that mm-hmm. is like treatment of patients, which is sad. But in a way, they're probably already wasting money. There is, it's tied up. I mean, I, you know, it's tied up in psychiatry. I kind of talked about it, touched on it a little bit. It's not to minimize
0: psychiatry as well, you know. No, like
1: but, but people have created but you've created an industry when you didn't have a, you know, you don't have an answer. So you mm. create this band aid. but then the people who make band-aids, they're a company now, you know? Yeah. And so they don't want to just go under. So if you're going to supplant the band-aid making company, you've got to like fire all these people, but mm. they're kind of ingrained in this, like in the medical community. Yeah. So you can't just like remove them because they're experts in dealing with this area, which no longer is relevant. So it's sort of yeah. uh,
0: so as a scientist, do you disagree with the psychological treatment of, or or the sole psychological treatment of, of MECFS, like as that
1: being the only? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's, it's not so much, you know, myself, I don't have a problem with cognitive behavioral therapy uh, mm-hmm. or psychiatry or psychology or any of these sort of things. Yeah. They definitely serve an important role. And sometimes that is, the treatment um, and the quality of life and in trying to improve that. And they do a really great job and I don't think they really should be the enemy. And that's what I wanted to try and make clear. There is no real big villain here. Yeah. Um, and this is but what, what is the problem is like some small subsets of the way they treat these patients. So part of cognitive, they call it the same name and language is actually one important topic probably should be brought up. Yeah. You know, we talk about this on on one of your podcasts, but.
0: Oh, we talk about it a lot, actually. It comes up like range. randomly in different interviews, but like oh, your
1: choice of words is huge. Choice of, like say, they'll say cognitive behavioral therapy. And for most people that's like, you know, that's like psychology, psychiatry. Hmm. Uh, but then for ME-CFS, there's actually a specific type of cognitive behavioral therapy where they tell you you don't have the condition over and yeah. over and that it's in your head. Yes. There's, a,
0: there's a particular, it's like a, a method. Yeah. yeah. But they
1: call it, they call it CBT still. And so wow. MECFS patients are like, we hate CBT. And, and yeah. then I
0: mean,
1: you say that to a bunch of psychiatrists, they're like, what?
0: Well, they're giving that's, CBT a bad name. They don't even
1: know that, that that's what they mean because yeah. they're, they're just regurgitating, what this other person has said because well, don't
0: they also in that particular um, that particular treatment, they like train lay people to, to treat um ME/CFS patients. Um, so you don't even have to be a trained
1: psychologist. They, they they, that does happen as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. That's, and that's, that's all that's part great. of the,
0: the money machine behind that, that particular. Yeah, that, hap-
1: that does happen as well. I don't think you guys really touched on that much, but <laughs> that's a really touchy subject. Um, because what people see is misdiagnosis is almost like a a subjective term because you only know that it was misdiagnosed after the fact, Mm -hmm. you know, after the fact that the person was treated by some psychiatry, psychiatry, and it helped them. And so that's not being honest to really what diagnosis is, because that's not, they weren't misdiagnosed. That is part of the diagnosis. They got diagnosed with this condition. They they probably met all the categories, but the reason they had this disease was, could have been different, and this could mm-hmm. very well be a different disease in general. So it's not exactly misdiagnosis. It's like
0: misunderstanding.
1: Well, it's a di- it's a poor diagnosis. So mm-hmm. the diag- so if not poor di- it's a diagnosis that the criteria is problematic, right? In the first place, the diagnosis. Criteria has an issue in the first place, and that is that it's probably lumping a whole bunch of people under the same category. And so, we talking,
0: looking at like several different diseases here, it might not. Oh, just be yeah.
1: That. I mean, we, and we know that because um, a lot of the people who get diagnosed. So the the older criteria, mm. ones from 1988, 1994, they didn't have post-exertional malaise as a necessary um, mm. symptom, which is the prime symptom of the disease. They had fatigue they had uh, um, sleep, they had pain. And mm-hmm. so essentially you could just have those three things and have the disease. And so if you had chronic pain that made it difficult for you to sleep and you were f- tired because of that, you could have the disease, if you know what I mean. So that's yeah. – or if you – and that, but that could
0: be any – that could be one of like 30 different diseases, yeah.
1: Exactly right. And that's coming down to you know, one of the main problems. And so that issue – has been somewhat resolved um, by trying to improve the diagnosis. So the, the more newer 2003 criteria and the 2011 criteria. And
0: But this is still like, that's nearly a decade old now too. They're,
1: they're, they're like a decade old, but they're, yeah. they're, they're still far better than the older ones. But those older ones, and this is what happens when you create like a, a diagnostic that's really broad, you have like the, you know, your population gets to this size. Mm. And then you, you get a tighter population and it gets down to here, right? But then what happens to these people? Because <laughs> they're, like, yeah. they're like, I got diagnosed with Basically,
0: this. Basically, and for now those, now, who obviously like, minute, no one now. can see what you've done, but you did like a little circle and a smaller circle inside it. And then what happens to the circle on the outside of those
1: circles? Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah. that's the, you know, you got the outside circle. What happens to the, then you, you make the inside circle, But what's happening now with the people outside, you know? Yeah. And so then you're uh, dealing with, trying to work out where those people sit. Um, and so it's a difficult thing in terms of the diagnosis because people, you know, once you've kind of said the diagnosis is this, then you kind of almost become responsible a little bit for looking after these people broadly. But uh, the important part, I guess, for research is that they recognize this. So the researchers are the ones that need to recognize that it could very well be multiple diseases or the diagnoses might be catching multiple diseases Mm. and that you need to be very specific with the clinician that you work with and the person who is providing you with patients and samples Mm. that they are extremely competent and extremely able to at least get a really refined cohort that you Mm. then go and study and that's really that's a lot of part of the research but it also creates a difficulty in in corroborating other people's research because you don't know much about you don't know all that's required to know about the way the patients they got were diagnosed so they'll usually say what criteria they used but truthfully there's a lot more that goes on than just the criteria Mm. like a doctor every specialist seems to have their own special mix of things that they do to separate these groups Um, yeah so that's There's
0: really no standardization of any of it
1: no that's that's tough i think and that's That's,
0: part of the the journey for you guys on the research front
1: yeah that's that's part of the journey Um, and that's why it's also a a good idea to have a large group like this and a foundation funding um, the projects because then we have in-house requirements that we stay consistent with across the all the groups that we work with Um, and so then there's more consistency across them and that's it's part of it as well as just, you know, not trusting the data that's in the information that's out there and pretty much going, well, we, we might need to start from, from day zero here and just build information that we trust. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So what I was going to say is what I should also mention is that the, so OMF, the, the structure of OMF itself is set up as a foundation under Linda Tannenbaum mm-hmm. who had a daughter who was, who was unwell with the condition and she, mm-hmm. she was a mother and she wanted to get something happening and so she started this foundation but it happened in association with um, Ron Davis or Dr. Ron Davis who is the director of the scientific advisory board that we have at Open Medicine Foundation. And so we have two Nobel laureates on this board, wow. and so, and uh, and five from the National Academy of Sciences. So we have not too uh, shabby. Not too shabby at all. You know, they're they're really tremendous researchers, and a lot of the, you know they they have a lot of say in dictating um, the type of research that gets going and yeah. the type of work that's getting done. And so that's kind of how we kind of do our governance, I guess. Yeah, of, of it's that you
0: have tastemakers on the board.
1: Yeah, that's right. So they're the ones who do a lot of this kind of decision making. And then they have uh, Dr. Ron Davis, who's also the director at the Stanford Collaborative Research Center. We have Dr. Ron Tompkins and Dr. Wenzon Zhao, who are also on the scientific advisory board, but they're also the directors of the Harvard Collaborative mm-hmm. Research Center. And then we have Dr. Jonas Burquist, who is um, also on the scientific advisory board, but also the director of the Uppsala collaborative research center which is in sweden That's so those great. are the ones and i just wanted to mention that yeah so you understand like the context of how all this is organized and my mm-hmm. role is really as a science liaison is to kind of kind bridge of bridge
0: the gap there
1: it's to bridge the gap of all the community all the things that come into omf all the research ideas and and people out there in the broader community kind of condensing those research ideas and, and um Um, And then from the other side, we have all the research that's happening in-house and translating that to the broader community to create more uh, information for people and update them. Because, you know, along this journey, you know, you can update people with research papers, but we like to try and update people as fast as possible. So we like to keep people abreast of what's going on um, so that they know, because really hope is a big factor for people with these diseases. um, And that's what's really required. And that's something that Open Medicine Foundation does provide on the daily in terms of helping patients is that provision of hope. And we hear that a lot from them. Yeah. And, we, and we definitely i have come to understand that for sure because you have that, you know, when you're in a condition where you don't or you want to know that people are behind the scenes working on this every day. They're trying to work out some, something on this disease and trying to work towards a treatment. And that's the hope that, that we provide.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like you're really putting the patients first, even though you're working on the research and stuff, it's all for the patients. That's really what you're about.
1: Yeah, that's, that's the pro- it's all for the patients. Um, and that's probably where chronic disease, you know, that's probably where medicine yeah, needs, to needs to be, right? I mean, that's, yeah. where, that's, that's the goal for everyone in every different type of condition is to get to that point because yeah. uh, people are what matter um, and the lives that they lead is what matters. Um, and that's, so that matters to us
0: how would your average person listening help, you know, um, like if we're all going to sort of grow the community to continue research and because research really is the key, then how can someone listening get involved in the fight for awareness and, um, you know, help continue the effort?
1: Um, well, just by being active, being present um, on social media, connecting, I think social media is really a great platform for this because you, in a way, it is trying to create a network in what we're trying to do, which mm. is, you know, we'll have Facebook, we'll have social media for Open Medicine Foundation or for ME-CFS, other groups that are available, and then they can spread and disseminate information onto their pages and then other groups that's a very that's i think that's an easy way of doing it but also you can get really active if you want to so put up for volunteering for for trying to raise awareness um, Mm -hmm. going to your government um, trying to make contact with them trying to educate other people of this condition when you have this disease i mean first and foremost educating yourself as well about the disease that you have i mean a lot of people do it um Mm -hmm and i guess we're fearful for the ones who haven't caught on to the biomedical and all this other information that's out there and are really just listening to their doctors and kind of suffering right now and may be completely unaware of all this other stuff that's going on so reach out into communities as much as we can um and and just talk to people around you and and kind of get involved i mean i am a researcher but i did get involved with the Australian government. I went to some meetings with ministers to try and educate them about it. Um, and it was good for my part. I was an expert, I guess, in the area to mm. explain to them. But also along with me, I had patience. And uh, yeah. they always, it's always important to tell the personal story because people really connect with personal stories, I think.
0: Absolutely. Well, that's another reason why this podcast exists. To yes, tell excellent. Well, Do you have any tips for someone who maybe thinks something is off? Like maybe they haven't got a diagnosis yet, but they're like, gee, Chris has mentioned a few things today that I have. Um, What would you suggest that someone in that position do if they're not being recognized by their medical team for a particular diagnosis or they're not being recognized by those around them in general? Um, What can people do to, to seek help and to seek a diagnosis and treatment?
1: well I would um, probably do definitely do the research that you can on the internet I mean there is a resource there and look into different areas try and connect to perhaps a uh, a group um, for the MECFS group within your local area wherever you are um, or your country or your state or wherever um, or any of the big organizations that um, like Open Medicine Foundation themselves and and really, just um, inform yourself about the condition itself um, in terms of what you would do. The number one thing is what we do for MECFS cfs patients, uh, which I, which you know, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm, I'm a I'm a PhD doctor, which is very different. But I um I can recommend that pacing is is very important. And so what we talk about pacing is that not Not pushing yourself into this crash. So, we call the crash is what the post exertion malaise symptom I was talking about. We call that um, a crash, I guess. And that's really what happens. You get to a point where you overexert yourself and you get significantly worse. And if you know that that's happening to you, if you recognize that that happens, like, and things like small things happen, like things that shouldn't do that to you, and that starts happening, then you need to consider that getting to those points when you crash are actually quite bad mm. and not good for you and so what you need to do is um, learn or understand your body learn, learn how you're working and what's happening to you leading up to that and trying and understand the early warning signs if you can not everyone gets them um, patients do a whole number of different things to look at this and that's, that's probably one of the best pieces of advice is just to try and not or try and avoid those crashes. And then yeah. it's also a balance at the same time because you don't want to decondition either completely. Right. And that is, a, that is a problem that happens with a lot of chronic disease, obviously. They, especially if you're bed bound for long periods of time, you know, deconditioning itself has a ne- negative impact on the body. And so it's kind of working out how you can try and build yourself out of that. You know, and there's always different levels. So you don't have to go from lying in bed all day, every day to then standing or walking or anything like that. You know, it's a very slow pace. So when we say pacing for some person with ME-CFS, it might be that they raise their arm, um, try and raise their arm once a day type of mm-hmm. thing. So, and that's how severe it can get. It can get extremely debilitating to the point where they need in, in home care, um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and J tubes and and all sorts of different things. So it's um, it's it's really based on the individual themselves. That would be that would be my piece of advice. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, that's that's really great. And when this episode goes live, you guys are also going to be with OMF. You're going to be in the middle of a fundraising initiative as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes. So we have a fundraising initiative uh, that really kicks off in october mm. um but it also in the in the weeks leading up to that and we call it it's called triple tuesday and so on that we have people who back the idea of of funding o- open medicine foundation and people who donate for every dollar they will they will add in to mm. i guess so a match it's an ability yeah a triple a double match so in a way you're you're able to i guess triple the size of your donation which you give Mm -hmm. and so that's a big campaign that we like to link uh, everyone together it really really pushes the momentum of giving Um, and it's something that's extremely important for Open Medicine Foundation because I mean all the most majority of the money goes to research um, Mm -hmm. as much as we can we have very very little um, costs for the foundation itself Um, and uh, that type of research is, is being crucial in trying to Find answers for this disease.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if anyone wants to find you as well and find OMF um, after listening to this episode, where can they find you guys?
1: So www.omf.ngo <laughs> yeah. is the is the home website. So that's that's the one to go for. Um, yep,
0: and you can find information about Chris and so many of the other uh, partners and research fellows um, and people who are working for the organization there, which is. Really wonderful. Yeah, There's lots of info there about MECFS, about the state of research, and um, it's a great place to start.
1: That's right. I mean, that's the that's the goal is to try and build as as a reservoir of information for people to have, mm-hmm. um, and but then also obviously on Facebook and Twitter as well as I mentioned um, and Instagram. Um, yeah. those are great tools for, and we share kind of updates every every day i think um and then we also have emails you can subscribe and we'll we have email updates or email blasts that we send out to people
0: part of it is just like having more of these conversations isn't it like to normalize the conversation that this disease exists um let alone to work on the research involved in diagnostics and and uh treatment you know just continuing to talk about it. It sounds like the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right?
1: Yeah. Just keep being louder and keep making an impression um, is the way to do it. And just, yeah, squeaky wheel gets the grease and that's the thing that you're trying to break. Uh, part of the, negative part of the cycle was that people like associating this with a psychological illness or there was something wrong with them or they were causing their own disease in their own head or trying to make this happen. That created like a really significant stigma for people with Mm -hmm. ME-CFS. And um, when that happens, you know, it's hard to have confidence in yourself to kind of ask for help or draw attention to yourself because you feel like there's, there's something wrong. And
0: uh, the energy when you've got the post exertion malaise, like, yeah, yeah. Joke. When I'm saying it, you know, like, well, I can't, I don't even have the energy to do it. But actually, a lot of these patients don't even have the energy reserves to advocate for themselves in any way at all.
1: No, definitely not. They don't. And uh, that's also important as well. I mean, if you know people, you know, when you have the illness, it's important, obviously, to try it if you can. Mm. But especially when you know someone who is sick and not just, you know, not just speaking to the people who think they may have this but speaking to the people who think they may know someone who has this you know Mm -hmm. i think it's really important to advocate or or speak for people who can't yeah um and i think you know there is a lot of value for doing that um for everybody um and uh it's very very necessary to do this so i think that would be also an important point to make
0: and the point here is that it's not just in your head this is a real disease and and no. You guys are working to find a cure, to find treatments, to to create diagnostic pathways so that doctors will recognize this disease more and not use, you know, diagnostics from thirty years ago as we discussed. So yeah,
1: that's 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 definitely the goal. I mean, that's yeah. the you know, and you gotta break that. Um and and I feel like that's being broken, but there are a lot of people out there who that's I guess who haven't kind of escaped that those clutches and uh,
0: well, there's still deniers out there. It's yeah,
1: th- there is, there is, and yeah. there's probably still people under under the care of deniers as well. So you've got to make sure that um, you try and get that information out there as far as and wide as you can, so that people go, oh wait a minute, there is a better answer to this question, mm. and actually I can re- rebuild, you know, kind of the confidence in, in what's happening to me and and be, and be like, well, this is, this is a disease that's happening to me and being telling people about it. I think yeah. that's really important. And I guess it's obviously very difficult. I know that. Um, but it's something that is really important. And um, you probably have a lot of experience with other people on this show mm-hmm. talking about that. But that's... Yeah.
0: This, this might come a little out of left field, but do you think that the current political climate is having an influence on the government's ability or interest in... In the um, US. <laughs> yeah, in the US, but I mean, broadly. it's going conservative in a lot of places, right? Do you think that, that, that that's having an influence on on the government's government's interest in um, validating the existence of this disease as well and, and other diseases that, you know, are I not. Really, properly I really diagnostic. hope
1: not. I can't imagine this would be a, I mean, I really hope not. Mm. I mean, this is something that affects all people. Yeah. Um, and all humans in, in you know, and it's and it doesn't seem to be you know it, it's it's an equal opportunity <laughs> disease I guess <laughs>
0: yeah. it
1: affects everyone equally and it doesn't. I want to
0: really, laugh and cry at the same yeah, time. <laughs> no,
1: it, you know, that's it. Doesn't care where you, yeah. you know what who you are or where you come from or or anything about that. So yeah. I can't imagine that would be something that uh, would matter to to these political groups. But okay. I hope not. In any case
0: yeah yeah well, and as you've said, a lot of it is like it takes some people having a personal connection to it right to really respond, but now's the time to get involved and to to continue the momentum with you guys um, yeah i mean
1: it's we're really i mean it's in some ways it's 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 you know it's obviously horrible, but uh, you know and we're excited at least in the ability to be at the initiation of this you know, new field of research and um, and this kind of new era of, of understanding for this condition. I think it's um, a very interesting time to be a part of this um, because there are so many diseases that we now know, but we take for granted the history of how they initiated and being really at the first steps of that, I think is uh, really, really, really interesting um, and, it's a, and it's a great opportunity for people to now start getting involved and have the confidence you know, in fundraising for these, the research that's happening because the research is really top-notch.
0: Yeah, and for the patients out there listening, knowing that there's community out there for you.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah.
0: And that's the great hope. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Chris. It's been great having you on.
1: Thank you very much, Lauren. It's been a pleasure.
0: That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank mm-hmm. you.